please remain standing, and if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of James in the New Testament, chapter 1. As we begin the new series this week, we'll be reading, starting in James, chapter 1, at verse 2. And as always, if you don't have your Bibles, it'll be on the screens around the church. In James, chapter 1, beginning at verse 2, we read, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no, no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with the scorching heat, and withers the grass. Its flowers falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, um, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That is our scripture for today from James chapter 1. Which we begin our series on the book of James, which we have titled Tried and True. Tried and True, because if we are in Christ, if we are true believers in Jesus Christ, our faith will be tried. We will face trials. But if the Spirit of God lives within us, He will carry us through. So therefore, we've entitled our series, Tried and True. Well, prior to around 1539, if someone had said, turn with me to the first chapter of the book of James, you might have gotten a lot of puzzled looks. Because the book of James, in the English translation, wasn't where it is today. It wasn't even in the canon, or rather in the, 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 the I should say that, it wasn't in the, the English uh, New Testament. It was hidden away in the back with some questionable books like Hebrews and Jude and Revelation. And this obscure placement of this book is kind of indicative of the initial reluctance of the early church in accepting it. If you remember Martin Luther... He called the book of James uh, the epistle of uh, straw, or a straw epistle. He didn't like it. He didn't like it because as he fought against the Catholic Church's um, salvation through, through works, his whole thing was it's by grace that you have been saved through faith. He thought there's too much about works. I think that helps us to understand where he was coming from. The book of James was written shortly after the ascension of Jesus Christ, after the resurrection. 
is written to Christian Jews who were dispersed from Jerusalem because of, of um, persecution. They, they left because of uh, the stoning of Stephen and just uh, various things going on. And as they went into a new place and tried to build a home, they faced insurmountable persecution at times. Um, tough times. They, um, their, their shops were boycotted. Their children were tormented in school. Their wives were cheated as they went to the market. It's interesting, the, the citizens of the town didn't like them because they were Jews. But the other Jews, who weren't Christians, didn't like them because they were Christians. So they faced a situation where they found themselves isolated. They found themselves threatened and intimidated by a hostile world. And they began to say to themselves and to each other, why is this happening to us? Why are we going through all this? We put our faith in Christ. And yet, we're going through this. What is God doing? Well, James, some 15 years earlier, had been the pastor of many of these. He heard about the persecution they were going through, and so he wrote the book of James. The first verse, he identifies himself as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and of God and he was that, but he was also the half-brother of Jesus Christ. If you think back, you remember James and his siblings weren't um, too thrilled with what Jesus did. Do you remember when they thought he was kind of uh, losing it because he said he was God? They tried to seize him. They wanted to maybe in, institutionalize him because they thought he was crazy. It took the... It took the resurrection of Jesus Christ to open James's eyes, and then he believed. James himself was later martyred because of his faith in Jesus Christ. Again, so this book was written to these Christians in a hostile environment. James emphasized that genuine faith results in godly living in the midst of trials, in the midst of hardship. A key theme of the book of James is faith without works is dead. Faith without works. Think. How do you even know it's a faith? It's one when someone says, I'm a Christian, but their lives haven't changed. True faith works. And true faith perseveres and endures through trials. And it's a faith that is tried and true. Again, works don't save us. I'll make that clear up front. Works don't save us, but we work because we're saved. Another theme is, we'll see as we go through the book of James is be doers of the word, not just hearers. And we're reminded that it's kind of like looking in a mirror and seeing dirt on our face but not cleaning it off. Really doers of the word. Sometimes the book of James jolts us with statements like, count it all joy when you go through various trials. Think about it. Count it all joy when you go through trials. Another one is, you do well to believe. Even the demons believe. That should hit us. 
That should cause us to question, do I really believe? We live in a time so often when we hear people say, yes, I'm a Christian. But their lives have never changed. Their lives continue in the way they were before. And James makes it clear that a, a life of faith is a life in which we struggle and mature as we go through trials. If we're honest, there are times in our lives when we don't just have a bad day. Right? We, we feel like our life has become a bad life because we go through struggles so much. There's so much hurt, so much hardship. But James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says that we're to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. I think maybe our first response when we read this, kind of all joy, is, who are we kidding? Who are we kidding? You want me to count it joy when I find out I've got cancer? You want me to count it joy when I find out my husband or a wife has cheated on me? You want me to be happy when I find out I'm facing bankruptcy? Or should I be filled with joy when my husband or wife loses their job? But see, this is not what the book of James is saying. He's not saying we're to grin and to bear it. So what does he mean? In verse 12, we read that we're blessed, or blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And at the end of the book, chapter 5, verse 11, it says, Those who remain steadfast are blessed. And it goes on and says, You've heard of Job's steadfastness. And seeing the purpose of God, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So why should you, why should I count it all joy? Because God is working in the midst of the trials in our lives. He's conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. He's making us more gentle. He's making us kind. He's stabilizing our lives. He's helping us to trust. He's helping us to love and to be wise and to encourage us. He wants us to be godly. Perseverance is that submission to God and what He's brought into our lives and a willingness to endure until He has completed His work. Sometimes, if we're honest, we start out and we trust God as we face trials and then we get tired. And we began to take things in our own hands. I want to make one thing clear. The book of James is not talking about bad things that happen to us because of our sin, because of our foolishness. God disciplines us for that. So we're not talking about someone cheating on a test and getting thrown out of school. We're not talking about someone who gets a sexually transmitted disease because they have been unfaithful in their marriage. We're not talking about someone marrying a non-believer and knowing it. Or losing a friend because we betrayed a secret. Again, those are handled by discipline. 
discipline. It's talking about difficulties that we didn't cause. We didn't cause them, we can't change them. But they're there in our lives. They're diseases that don't come from our foolishness. There's financial failure that didn't come because we were foolish with our money. I think back to a few years ago when the market just bottomed out. Sometimes things happen beyond our ability. Sometimes people suffer because they had alcoholic parents. Sometimes people suffer because they were sexually abused. These and many other things are what we're looking at. Two points today. Trials will come in our lives. Trials will come. It's not a matter of if they will come. They will come. And two, we're to count it all joy because God is good. God is good. He's in control, working His plan for our lives. Today I want us to first to remember, to be reminded that there is nothing that God doesn't govern. Nothing that He doesn't know about as we go through the process of trials in our lives. 1 Kings 8.27 is... King Solomon was dedicating the temple. He said, The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. In Jeremiah 23, God says, Can anyone hide so I can't see them? Do I not fill the earth and the heavens? And Ephesians 4.10 says that He fills the whole universe. He fills the whole universe. With God fills the whole universe, how big does that make him? Because he created it all. Consider this. You can fit one million earths into the sun. One million earths into the sun. And the sun is a smaller star. There are stars within our galaxy that are 800 times bigger than the sun. The next closest star to the sun is the Alpha Centauri, which is about 4.4 light years away. And that means if we could take a car and could drive through space at 60 miles an hour, it would take you... 30 million years to get there. It's a big universe. It's a big galaxy. Beyond that, there are 200 billion stars in our galaxy, and there are 100 billion other galaxies. As you think about these facts, we see that the universe... Is so big, and our God is so big, even bigger, of course. We can't comprehend this, how God is able to know all these things and to govern them, how he knows about the orbit of every planet in the universe, the temperature of every sun. And yet, and yet, in the midst of this immensity of God, he is able to zero in on you. He's able to zero in on me. And he knows us. 
the minute details of our lives. Scripture says that He has taken a special interest in us. In the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, it says that, says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? In other words, they're not worth a whole lot, and yet not one will fall without God's awareness. And it goes on and says, Even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, for you are far more valuable than the sparrows. Because God knows the hairs on our head, we haven't got to fear. Though some of us who may not have hairs on their head, God knew the number of hairs you had before you lost it. He even knows what you got left. Psalm 139 talks about how he knows this. Verses 1 through 5 says, You have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You know my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it. And it goes on that same passage, 139 verses 13 through 16. It says, You created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You saw me before I was born. And every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. Our God is sovereign. Our God is all-wise. Our God is good. He's sovereign, and yet He knows the details of our lives. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows you, your giftedness, your temperament, your personality, because He formed you. He made you the way you are. Think about this. In the midst of the trials that you're going through now, or you will go through, we need to know God. We need to know who He is. We need to personalize what God says about His interest in us. Yes, He's infinite. Yes, He's all-wise. Yes, He is perfect in love. Yes, He is sovereign. And yet, He knows the hairs on your head. That is so powerful if you think about it. Too often we have a wrong view of who God is. We see him as a police officer just waiting to give us a ticket. Or maybe we see him as a school teacher. You ever have a t- teacher that she was so strict you couldn't enjoy learning? There's no freedom? It's like, better not smile, better not enjoy yourself because she's going to stop you. Sometimes as we go through life, sometimes as we struggle, we have a wrong picture of who God is. And He certainly isn't like that. The psalmist in, chapter, in, in, in Psalm 16 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Eternal pleasures. Not, not the temporary pleasures that we tend to move toward here. Pleasures that we feel guilt for later. John 10.10, Jesus Christ says, I came that they may have life 
and have it abundantly. See, God knows us. He loves us. He longs for the best for us. As we go through trials, we need to know and understand who God is. Because if we're honest, in the midst of trials, in the midst of hardships, we lose touch of who He is. We begin to believe lies that Satan might whisper to us. That he doesn't care. God doesn't care. Or people around me don't care. Sometimes in the midst of trials and struggles, we lose hope. We want to quit. We want to give up. But remember who God is. The God who created this humongous universe. And yet the God who knows the number of hairs on our head will approach trials and tribulations in a different way. We need to understand that God longs for the best for us. He's not our enemy. He leads us into the most fulfilling life if we listen to Him. Again, He's not our enemy. The question is, how does God lead us? The psalmist says, you have led me. You have granted me fullness of life. And Jesus says, I come that you might have life and have it abundantly. How does God lead us into this life, into this meaningful life? God leads us into the fullest life by revealing who He is. And when we know who He is, then it's easy for us to follow Him. As we go through the book of James, we're going to see who He is. We're going to see His power. We're going to see His glory. We're going to understand more about who He is. And as we learn God's Word, we're going to hear, as we listen to Him, we're going to hear Him saying, this way, follow me, this way, this way to peace, uh, this way to joy, this way to rest. He leads us. God pursues us. He persuades us in the midst of trials and temptations. And as we obey Him, we see Him for who He is, for all His glory and all His power and His perfect love. He draws us to Himself. He draws us to Himself in the midst of trials and struggles. He woos us to Himself. James chapter 1 verse 5 reads, If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask who gives generously without reproach and will be given to him. Now first, for you college students and high school students, this isn't for you. This isn't for you on the morning of the test when you haven't studied. As we go through life, we're to go to God and ask for wisdom. And we see here that He gives generously. His heart attitude is generous. He wants to give. Have you ever interacted with someone and, and, you, and you ask maybe for something and you know that they're like giving it to you like this. God's arms are open wide. They're open wide. He says, if you lack wisdom, as you go through trials, come to me and I'll give you wisdom. I'll give you wisdom. 
Why does He do that? How does He give us wisdom? I think as we go through life, as we're struggling, sometimes we'll, we'll, we'll hear from our friend or a family member and they'll say something to us. And maybe as we're studying God's Word, the Spirit of God will speak to us. Sometimes as we're praying, God will use that as He speaks to us. And yes, it's probably a combination of all those things as we go through life, as we look at God's Word, as we pray, as we seek the wisdom from others. God says in His Word, if we lack wisdom, ask Him. But there's one condition. There's one condition. There must be a trusting, believing heart. James 6 through 8 says, Let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded, unstable in all his ways. When we ask, we need to trust God that he's working good in our lives through the trial. We need to trust him. That's why I want us to know who he is. I want us to remind us that he's this powerful God who's over all things, and yet he knows the hairs on our head. If we know who he is, if we remember who he is, as we go through these struggles and these trials, it's easier for us to trust him, isn't it? We must not doubt that he's brought us, brought it to us in order, we must remember that he's brought it to us in order to mature us. <laughs> he says that, basically that if we're coming to him, we can't be argumentative. Do you ever argue with God? Do you ever argue with God? We do. We do. We can't argue with God as we seek wisdom. We can't be defiant or rebellious. If we doubt God, is going to do anything for us, then we won't get an answer. It gives an example there. It's almost like a cork in a turbulent sea. It's up and down, back and forth, this way and that way. Have you ever been to a sea and seen something bobbling? Back and forth. Sometimes it goes under, comes back up. And God says that's who we are when, we, when we're double, double-minded. Donald Sanukin writes, Double-minded means that you're unable to decide whether the trial is God working on something in you or just a result of some other stupid people in your life who need to be taught a thing or two and told where to get off. Now, I know that not one of us has ever thought that. Truth is, don't we, sometimes in the midst of trials, we think, that person just wasn't involved. If he or she were just not around me, that stupid individual, how could he say that? But see, God says, he may use individuals like that in our lives, because he wants to work in your life, in my life, 
He wants to work in such a way that we submit to Him and allow Him to work. Verses 9 through 11 reminds us that we're to look him, to Him for our provision. It says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. I, I love how it transposes what the world says. The poor person is exalted and the rich is humiliated. And it goes on and says this, Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorched heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes, but also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. What a powerful picture of the riches that we so often seek. It rises up and it falls. God wants us to be more impressed with eternal riches that he's given us. He wants us to see our high position we have in Christ Jesus for eternity. Not something that will fade away. Not up today and gone tomorrow. He wants us to take pride, so to speak, and see the honor that he has given us when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Sanukian again says, God wants us to realize that it's what we do for eternity that matters. Think about it. God wants us to remember that what we, it's what we do for eternity that matters. That our lives not be caught up in our business, in our careers, in our home, in our car, in our clothes, in our vacations. Because all these disappear. They perish. None really matters. What really matters is what we're doing that will last for eternity. And yet if we're honest with ourselves, in the midst of life, we struggle with these things. We struggle with them. He wants us, though, to be concerned with eternal things. Again, we're to consider it joy. Whenever we face a trial, God is making us whom He longs for us to be. And, and, and if we're believers, whom we long to be. He wants us to grow and mature and to be like Christ. Verse 12 says that, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The person who perseveres receives the crown of life. And some have said that a more accurate translation might be that he receives a crown which is life, life eternal. Perseverance gives evidence of true faith. And true faith endures to the end. It's tried and true, if you will. Verse 13 says, Let no one say when he's tempted, that I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then the desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. James is quick to tell us, don't blame God. God has nothing to do with evil. God is not tempted by evil. He doesn't tempt any of us. 
Some people have tried to say that, well, God put this before me. But God doesn't want, he, he doesn't purposely put something in our life where we might sin. We go on and look, if God doesn't tempt us, who does? A lot of times we say Satan did. And sometimes Satan does. Sometimes Satan whispers lies to our ears and we listen. But this passage says that it comes from within us. It comes from within us. Some desire within us is causing us to be tempted. And we want very much to have it for ourselves. And so we, something pops in our mind that's evil. It's a wrong way to attain maybe something good. And if we don't deal with it quickly, pretty soon it controls our minds. It becomes compelling and powerful. And then we give in. And then we sin. Verses 14 and 15 says, Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own desire. The word dragged away here is almost a violent term. It's like, it's kind of like you've got a, a fish hook in your mouth. And you're being pulled. And that's the way sin is in our lives. As we're tempted. It pulls us. We're, we, we, we fall when we are dragged away by our, uh, our thoughts. And second word is when we're enticed. And this is similar, but a little bit different in the sense that it's like an animal that sees a bait. I, I thought about a, a, a rat or a mouse, and they see cheese on a trap. And they don't think about the trap. They don't think about getting caught. They see that cheese, and they go for it. And that's what sin does to us. We go for the bait. And then, of course, we sin, and sin results in death. You see, our heart is deceitful, even though the world wants to say that, uh, there's not evil. The heart is deceitful. And we don't believe God when He says, this is good for you. This is the best. We argue, but God, this, I want this. And he says, no, not this. This. And today, tomorrow, we'll be tempted in different ways. Maybe someone now is toying with, with some kind of a... Uh, idea of sin that they are going to commit. Whatever the deception is that you design that I'm wanting to fulfill, run away from it because they kill you. Sin has the ability to mask itself. It, it looks harmless. It looks harmless, but has horrible consequences. As I think about different lures we might be drawn toward in sin, sometimes We've become so caught up in success that becomes our everything. We forget about our kids. We forget about our spouse. Our focus in life is success. Sometimes that lure of sin is the, the lie that if I do this, it won't really hurt me. 
It won't hurt my family. How many times have I sat down with men and women who have been unfaithful to their spouse? And the overwhelming pain and hurt, not just to themselves, but to the ones they love. You see, when we're going through that temptation process, we don't think about that. Well, James 16 and 7, 1, 16 through 18 says, Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be the kind of firstfruits of his creation. Everything that God is doing in your life and in my life is for the good. His will is that we might become like Christ. As I thought about this, everything that God gives is good. Okay, we got that. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. Now think about it. Anniversary, my birthdays, Christmas, somebody you care for, somebody you love, you want to get that right gift, right? Now, those of you who know me know that if you were to get me a gift card to a seafood restaurant, I don't care how high-end it is, it wouldn't mean two cents to me because I hate seafood. I hate it. Now, give it to my wife, Chris. And she would thank you. You see, what is that perfect gift? When we, when we buy a gift, we, want it, we don't want a flimsy gift. We don't want to get a cheap gift. We want to get a good gift. A gift that is unique to that person that we love and we care for. I can't think of too many women who would love to get a gift card from Home Depot. But there's one lady in this church, and many of you know her, who would very willingly love a gift card from Home Depot. It is Miss Santia Jurena. Her granddaughter is pointing at her. Our staff gave her, for her birthday, a gift card to Home Depot. You see, we know Santia. She's always working on her house. She's always doing these building projects. And we try to be different. We don't want to always give each other, although I'm very willing to accept a gift card to Amazon. We, we don't want to always get the same thing. And so we're trying to be creative, and we came up with that. Because, see, the staff knows Santia. And we know that she likes to buy things. Jeanette, we would never give you a gift card to Home Depot. I think I staff because we know you. You would love a gift card to a French restaurant because you and Rick are always going on special occasions, sometimes not even special occasions, to these different French restaurants. You see, in the same way 
In the same way, we need to start with a conviction that whatever God is doing in your life, in my life, is a good and perfect gift. The top of the line. It's not flimsy. It's chosen, especially for you, especially for me. Because God knows us. He knows us far better than we know ourselves. Sometimes we struggle with a stagnant career. I've talked with some of you, and I know it's hard. And sometimes maybe it could be that, that he has you there where you can look for jobs somewhere else. Maybe the company that you're working with is about to have a bottom, bottom out. You need to look somewhere else. Or maybe he wants you to do something that you're gifted in better. Sometimes singleness, and I'll be careful here, sometimes singleness, God keeps us single for different reasons. Sometimes maybe because our parents need us for a time period. Sometimes because there's another person coming along. I think back to my days at ICI and there's a young lady who just so longed to get married. And then finally someone, some missionary came along and the staff just knew that this is who it was. And I remember being disappointed that they didn't connect. But later on, another guy came along and it was like love first sight. They got married. They have kids. They love the Lord and their kids love the Lord. See, sometimes God has a better person. But sometimes we rush because we've got to be married. Then once we're married, we say, oh, I wish I'd have waited. Trust. Trust that God has the perfect gift for you. That unique gift that is for you. You alone. Again, everything God does is good. Don't be deceived. God loves you. And every thought he has toward you is good. And when we doubt his love, we need to remember that he chose us. Eternity past. He chose us. He made us a part of his family. Forever. Finally, James 1.18 says... He chose to give birth to us by giving us His true Word. And we, out of all creation, became His prized possession. Remember, trials will come. It's not an if. They come to make us more Christ-like. Trials remind us of our need for God. We learn to trust His wisdom, rely on His resources, and live for eternity. We're responsible for our temptations and struggles. When we face financial problems, we're tempted to question God's provision. And when someone dies that we love, 
we attempted to question God's love. And finally, when we experience undeserved suffering, we're tempted to question God's justice. But God is faithful to carry us through the trials because as creator of this huge universe I mentioned, he has it all in control, and yet he knows you. He knows you. He knows our needs, and his gifts are unique. Let's pray.